your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue to study God's Word together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week, we explained that there are two problems being addressed by Paul here in this section of his letter to the church at Corinth. Number one, a big problem. A man in the church claims to be a Christian, but he is living in an ongoing, public, immoral relationship with his father's wife. That's a big problem. But a bigger problem, a bigger problem even than that. The church is indifferent about this man's sin. The church is tolerating this man, doing nothing about it. So Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's read our sermon text this morning, just the first two verses. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So Paul's solution to this big problem and the even bigger problem is really clear, isn't it? Verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from you. Remove this man from your church. And then he, in in the rest of chapter 5, we talked about this last week, Paul gives three reasons for removing this man from the church. Number one, to, to save this unregenerate man. I mean this, pardon me, this unrepentant man. Number two, to protect the purity of the church. And number three, to preserve the church's witness to the world around it. All three of these reasons are driven by love, pure gospel love. We saw that last week. We're going to talk about that next week. But what we see in this text is church discipline removing this man from among you, motivated by love to save him, to protect the purity of the church, and to preserve the church's witness to the world. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in a nutshell. Well, as clear as Paul's instruction about church discipline is here to the church at Corinth, I'm not sure that it makes much sense to most Christians today. When Paul says, let him who has done this be removed from you, I think many Christians would ask, be removed from what? And I understand why. I really do understand why, because our view of the church has changed so dramatically over the years. Be removed from what? Some Christians think of the church as a worship service. So we all know that a church is not a building, 
It's, it's not, you know, the building where the church meets. When you drive by, you see the church, you see the doors, you, all that kind of stuff. It's, but often we think about the church as a worship service. In fact, this morning you might have, you might have said, come on, get up, get ready. We're going to church today. Right? We go to church, meaning we go at 1030 on Sunday morning to a worship service. And I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that unless that's the extent of your definition of the church. And for many people, that is. Their view of the church is going to the church once a week or just a couple of times a month or a couple of times a year. So when Paul says, let this one who has done this be removed from you, is he saying, don't let this man come to your worship services anymore? Well, if the goal is that this man be brought to repentance, then don't we want him to hear God's word? It doesn't make sense. I think some Christians would ask, be removed from what? Because even more Christians think of being part of the church as a uh, one-sided, informal, voluntary relationship. If being part of Winchester Baptist Church is a one-sided relationship, then we have no say in whether you participate in our church or not. If your coming, your participation is completely up to you and every other individual in the room, one-sided relationship, then what say do we have? How could we ever remove you? If being part of Winchester Baptist Church is a, is a voluntary, purely voluntary relationship, then we would have no right to press any obligations on anyone to do anything. So how could we remove them? If being part of Winchester Baptist Church is an informal relationship, then how can we formally remove someone when there is no formal relationship to be removed from? Clearly, Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is calling for the church to, to take authoritative, formal action in order to preserve the church's witness in their community. Is he not? Isn't he calling for formal, authoritative action here? And if not just in verse 1 and 2, look at verse 4. Paul says, when you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's formal, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Look at verse 12. You are to judge those inside the church. Huh. Look at verse 13 at the end. Purge the evil person from among you. 
clearly calling for formal, authoritative action in order to call this man to repentance, protect the health of the church, and preserve the witness of the church and the community. So the main question from this text that I'd like to answer in our sermon this morning is this. What authority does the church have to remove anyone? According to the common view of the church, the church has no authority at all. It's a one-sided, come one, come all. Whoever wants to can come. Voluntary, informal relationship that's largely made up of just meeting together for worship once a week. What authority does the church have to remove anyone? Well, this morning I'd like to give you a different view of the church. One that is less common, but more biblical. One that will make sense of church discipline. So what authority does the church have to remove anyone? Here's the answer that I would like to explore together this morning. Jesus gave his church the responsibility and authority to affirm and deny gospel confessions and confessors. Let me say that again. What authority does the church have? Well, Jesus gave his church the responsibility and the authority to affirm and deny gospel confessions and gospel confessors. And that's Paul's view of the church that causes him to instruct them to remove this confessor from among you. There is a man among them who confesses to follow Jesus with his lips, but his life says the exact opposite. Remove the man from your church. Because Jesus gave his church the responsibility and authority to both affirm and deny gospel confessions and confessors. Where do we see this in Scripture? It seems to be assumed here in this text. Paul's working off of this as his basis. Well, that's because Paul understood the teachings of Jesus and had a good biblical theology uh, for the church. He had a good biblical ecclesiology. So I want to show you a uh, New Testament theology of the authority of the church this morning. And I'm going to do that primarily from three texts, all in the same book, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and Matthew 28. So would you please turn to our first text, uh, Matthew chapter 16. I want to show you uh, the authority of the church the basis from which Paul instructs the local church at Corinth. 
I'm, I'm arguing a point this morning. I'm arguing that the church might be more than what you think it is. I'm, I'm arguing that maybe many Christians have a really low view of the church when we need to have an, a, a higher view of the church. I'm arguing that the church is the authorized representative of Jesus Christ on earth. Matthew 16, uh, verse 13 through 19. You're following along? Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's God's word. So Matthew 16 shows us that Jesus gave the responsibility and the authority to his church, and he did it progressively. What I want to show you is is a progressive development of Jesus giving his authority to the church. Number one, here's here's how this happened. Number one, in, in verse 13 through 17, Jesus affirmed Peter's true gospel confession. That's point number one. What we see is... Jesus affirmed Peter's true gospel confession. Everything in chapter 16 leads up to and flows out of this massive confession, this true gospel confession from Peter. Look at verse 5 through 12. What sets this up? is that Jesus has just condemned the false teaching of the Pharisees. Look in verse 6, Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 12, they understood that Jesus was telling them, Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the old regime has gotten it wrong. The religious teachers, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're out there uh, giving false doctrine. And then in verse 13, Jesus affirms Peter's confession. He asks, not about the religious teachers, but about popular opinion. Who do people say that I am? Well, they say you're a great teacher. You're one of the prophets. No, they got it wrong too. So the religious crowd's got it wrong. Popular opinion has it wrong. But who's got it right? Peter does. Look there at verse 16. 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is a true gospel confession. John Calvin said this about it. The confession is short, but it embraces all that is contained in our salvation. What Peter said is that Jesus is the son of the living God. He is the anointed Messiah who has come to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises about God's king. We don't have time to give an overview of the Old Testament this morning, but if you remember anything about the promise of the Messiah, the Messiah is the one who will rescue God's people. The Messiah is the one who will restore God's people to God's kingdom. The Messiah is the one who will reign over God's people in righteousness and peace forever. When Peter says, you are the Christ, he's saying you are the anointed Messiah of God who has come to rescue us, restore us, and reign over us forever. And that's exactly right. Jesus accomplished all of that through his death and resurrection. And Jesus said in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon. Peter's confession is a great blessing because God has revealed this truth to him. Jesus affirmed Peter's confession in an emphatic way. Everything leads up to it. Everything flows out of it. So that we would understand that this is his true identity. Regardless of what religious say, religion says, regardless of what society says. This is the good news that changes everything, friends. And this is the true confession of all true disciples of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you believe this. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Well, not only did Jesus affirm Peter's true confession, but then Jesus did something else. It doesn't stop there. There's a progression. In verse 18, Jesus promised to build his church on gospel confessions and gospel confessors just like that. They're linked. God's revealed this to you, and I tell you, verse 18, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus promised to build his church on this rock. What rock? Well, the text reads very plainly, as if Peter is in fact that rock. It's a play on words. The name Peter means rock 
And Jesus is going to build his church on this rock. The point is that Jesus builds the church on both Peter and Peter's confession. Jonathan Lehman is helpful here. He says, theologians have long debated whether the rock is Peter or Peter's confession. In fact, I think you have to say both. Presbyterian theologian Edmund Clowney writes, quote, the confession cannot be separated from Peter. Neither can Peter be separated from his confession. Jesus builds his church not on words, not on people, but on people who believe the right gospel words. Jesus will build his church on confessors. So having affirmed Peter's confession, Jesus promises to build his church on gospel confessors. And then number three, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter, authorizing his disciples to bind and loose Gospel confessions and gospel confessors. Read verse 19. This is a progressive linking chain of events. Verse 19. To the same Peter who just had this brilliant gospel confession. Verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whatever that is, that's significant, right? This is the cooperation of heaven and earth here. This is binding and loosing. These aren't just keys. Look, this is not keys to that coveted Toyota Tacoma that you've been wanting. Okay. Maybe you haven't, but I have. These are keys to the kingdom of heaven. And they bind and loose. What are the keys of the kingdom? Well, the keys of the kingdom grant the authority to Peter and the disciples to do the same thing that Jesus just did. Namely, to affirm true gospel confessions and confessors, to bind and loose based on true gospel confessions. By giving them the keys, Jesus authorizes Peter and his disciples to be his representatives on earth, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and to affirm those who are now citizens of the kingdom because of their gospel confession. Do you see the chain of events? 
false teaching by the religious establishment, gospel confession by the disciples of Jesus, building his church based on that kind of gospel confession, and now the authority to affirm or deny, bind and loose, gospel confessors. Lest you think that I might be stretching that a bit, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard of the keys of the kingdom. Maybe this is new territory for you. It was only a few years ago that I had never heard of or considered the keys of the kingdom. Lest you think I'm stretching this a bit, let me just give a a couple of different quotes from some people that I've already mentioned here this morning. Jonathan Lehman, quote, what exactly are the keys of the kingdom for binding and loosing? The keys represent the authority to build the church on earth on Jesus's behalf by declaring what and who belong to the kingdom of heaven. What is a right confession of the gospel and who is a right confessor? But then Jonathan Lehman's a Baptist. Okay, Edmund Clowney, first president of Westminster, very Presbyterian seminary. Quote, the authority of the keys enabled the apostles to declare on what terms the kingdom of heaven was opened or shut to men and women. The keys opened the kingdom to individuals and households or cities that received the gospel message, but closed it to those who rejected the Lord of the kingdom. Because they represented Christ and brought his message, what they bound or loosed on earth was already bound or loosed in heaven. Their authority did not shape the kingdom or compose its laws. The keys of the kingdom were not blanks to be filed to their own design. The authority was Christ's, and they bore his words and pronounced his judgments. This week I confirmed that this is the orthodox understanding of the keys of the kingdom throughout church history. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, the the Westminster uh, Presbyterians of 1646, the Baptists, including Benjamin Keach of 1677, the Philadelphia Associations of Baptists in America in 1748, throughout church history, we have understood that the keys of the kingdom authorize Peter and his disciples the authority to bind and loose gospel confessions and confessors. Jesus affirmed this gospel confession. Jesus is building his church on gospel confessors. Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter and his disciples, authorizing them to be part of building his church based on gospel confessors 
And number four. Guess where we see the keys in operation in Matthew 18? Not in the hands of Peter. Not in the hands of any of the disciples by name. But in Matthew 18, we see the keys of the kingdom being exercised by the church. Because the authority of Jesus Christ was not just given to Peter as a first pope or the disciples only, but the disciples as representatives of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ of all time, the church of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 18, please look there with me. Matthew 18, verse 15 through 20, Jesus tells a story. And he illustrates the authority of the keys being exercised by a local church in church discipline. Jesus tells a story in verse 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Though Jesus never mentions the word keys of the kingdom, do you see the correlation between Matthew 16 and Matthew 18? Do you see the same words? The keys that were given to Peter are now in the hands of the church. They were never Peter's only. They were always given to the disciples and the church of Jesus Christ. The keys that were given to Peter are now in the hands of the church. And the church is exercising the authority that comes with the keys to bind and loose. And it's in the context of what? Church discipline, same thing as 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a biblical theology, a New Testament theology of the authority of the church to remove someone. What authority does the local church have to remove anyone? Here it is. Jesus gave his church both the responsibility and the authority 
to exercise the keys of the kingdom and exercising the keys of the kingdom is affirming true gospel confessors and denying them. Affirming them. Yes, that's right. You got it right. You believe. We hear your confession. No. Apparently, you don't understand because your lips are saying one thing and your life is saying another. Deny. That authority has been given to no individual Christian, to no pope or pastor, but to the church of Jesus Christ. The church is exercising the authority of the keys. Notice in verse 18, the language is similar to Matthew 16, binding and loosing. Do you see that? Whatever is bound, whatever is loosed. Notice in verse 19, the language is similar to 1 Corinthians 5. They are gathered and in the name of Jesus. Those are formal authoritarian words. And they are agreeing on something. They're making a judgment about something, speaking clearly. Does all this mean that what a local church does on earth actually changes a person's status in heaven? No, the verb tense here would actually better be translated as the NASB translates it. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Earth is declaring what heaven's already said. The church's job, Lehman says, is like an ambassador's or an embassy's. An embassy doesn't make a person a citizen. It formally affirms it in a way that a person can't do by himself. An embassy is a building or a piece of ground in a foreign country, and and that represents the nation in a foreign place, doesn't it? An embassy. The church is an embassy here on earth. And what we do is we represent the kingdom of heaven on earth. And one of our jobs is to affirm the citizenship of true confessors. Not only to affirm the citizenship of true confessors, but to deny it too. When their confession does not match with their life. You know how dangerous it is? Do you know how warped it is for people to go around calling themselves Christians and living in a completely opposite way? They are dragging the name of Jesus Christ through the mud. The witness of the gospel is warped when that happens, and the church has the responsibility and authority to do something about that. What do they do? Remove the man from among you. Make a formal, authoritative judgment about that kind of a lifestyle. Say something. Do something. To call him to repentance, to protect the 
health of the church, and certainly to preserve the witness of the gospel to the world around. Jesus illustrates the authority of the keys being exercised by a local church in a case of discipline that's denying a false confession. One more point in this New Testament theology of the authority of the church. Number five, if we go over to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commissions his disciples and his church to make disciples. Go. Go all over the world to every kind of people there is possible. Make disciples. And what's the first thing that the church is supposed to do? First thing. Baptize them. What is baptism? Baptism is affirming, publicly affirming, true gospel confessors. This guy's with us. He's repented of his sin. He believes that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're baptizing him with a formal, authoritative statement about his confession of faith in Jesus. Read it, Matthew chapter 28, Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as the king of the kingdom, now Jesus commissions his church. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, the authoritative name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus gives his power, his authority, and his presence as the church goes to make more disciples. And the very first thing that he wants them to do is affirm true gospel confessors by this thing we call baptism. Baptism is a public affirmation. It's a public identification. I'm now with Jesus. Right, Jack? Right, Jillian? I'm with Jesus now. Right, Johnny? And it's the church saying, this guy's one of us. You don't baptize yourself and you don't baptize yourself in private. It's not a one-sided relationship. It's a two-sided, mutually agreeing relationship. Confessor, affirmer. And just like it's not private and it's not individual, neither is it given to every Christian. Baptism is given to the church. 
as the authorized representative of Jesus on planet Earth. I've tried to lay out a, a, a New Testament view of the church that's less common, admittedly, but, but makes more sense of church discipline. Jesus gave his church the responsibility and the authority to affirm and deny gospel confessions and gospel confessors. Paul applies that to the church, the local church in Corinth, doesn't he? Did you notice how in uh, the very beginning of his book, Paul immediately started talking about baptism? The local church affirms confessors and confessors through baptism. Acts chapter 18, verse 8, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Something we haven't talked about this morning, but the local church celebrates confessors and confessions through communion. Paul talks to the church about that in chapter 10 and 11, about the cup of blessing that we bless and participate in the blood of Christ and the body of Christ and gives it with warning. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is not an individual private matter. It's an ordinance given to the church and comes with both blessing and warning. It's a serious matter. So we affirm confessors through baptism. We celebrate confessors through communion and then Chapter 5, we deny confessors through discipline. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. It's just the application of all of the teaching of Jesus about the authority that he has given to his local church. So friends, I'd like to just, having laid that out, I'd like to suggest three responses that sort of cover the various kinds of people in the room. Response number one, the response of our church as a whole, Winchester Baptist Church. My prayer is that our church might faithfully, lovingly exercise the authority that we have been given that we will faithfully affirm, faithfully celebrate, and faithfully deny gospel confessors when necessary. With something so sensitive, so difficult as church discipline, it would be easy for us just to want to lay that particular part of the New Testament aside and even say that it's loving to do so but we are not more loving than God. And God knows what's best for our souls. So my prayer is that our church might faithfully and lovingly exercise the authority that Jesus has given to us. Number two, your response as a, as a Christian. So if you're here this morning and you're not, you are a Christian, 
My prayer is that each Christian might consider his or her relationship with the authority of the church. Maybe your eyes have been just kind of opened a little bit more to, to the church as something more than this, than, you know, just a good religious thing on earth or a worship service. But it's the authorized representative of Christ on earth. My prayer is that you, every single Christian in the room, would would consider your relationship with this authorized representative of Jesus, the church. The, The biblical theology that I just laid out for you is one of the major arguments for covenant church membership. Friends, this is why we take biblical church membership seriously. So are you a member of a local church, this one or another gospel church? If you're not a a member of a gospel church, I'm sure that there are probably some good reasons for that. But frankly, I know that there are a lot of bad reasons for not being a member of a local church. Like a spirit of independence that avoids commitment and responsibility. You just want to keep things at an arm's length distance so that you can do your own thing, come in and come out as you want. There's a lot of bad reasons for not becoming a covenant member of a local church, like an arrogance that resists the notion of of anyone affirming or denying my faith in Jesus. Or maybe a consumer mentality that that wants to keep your options open so that if you like the Bible study better over here or the teaching better over there or the community groups better over there or the music better over there or the kids' programs over here, you can always keep your options open. Friends, these are lame, lame reasons to not become a covenant member of a local church. Can can I just take a moment to read what Jonathan Lehman says about this? Because he makes a strong case. Anyone who claims Jesus is the Christ and attempts to bear his name publicly must belong to this society on earth, the church. There's one rock on which the true church is built and against which the gates of hell will not prevail. And there's one set of keys which now belongs to the church. No one else has them. A person who claims Jesus is the Christ but refused to submit to the king's key-bearing agent on earth hasn't really submitted to the king. So if you're not a member, I encourage you to consider the biblical case for membership in a local church like Corinth, like Philippi, like Ephesus, like Winchester. We're not the only good church in town. We're not the only gospel church in town. If you can't join with us here and jump in with both feet, then I encourage you to find one where you can. But church membership 
is biblical and it is best for everyone. We commit ourselves to each other and we submit to Jesus through his word. If you are a member of this church, then what we have learned today should call us to a greater faithfulness to the Lord and to one another so that our participation in this local body promotes the overall health of this church and our corporate witness to the world around us. Members be faithful. Members encourage one another in your faith. And then finally, a third response, if you're not a Christian. My prayer is that you might see the grace of God in Jesus Christ for sinners like us. This is a room full of sinners who desperately need a Savior. And if you're not a Christian yet, my prayer is that God will open your eyes so that you see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. My prayer is that you will be affirmed by baptism and make a public profession, confession of your faith and be publicly identified with Jesus Christ. And that you'll become a member of this church or another gospel church where you're going to be surrounded by brothers and sisters who promise to walk with Jesus together. And love each other enough to admonish one another when necessary. This is God's design for the church. May God give us the grace and wisdom that we need to do all of these things for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you very much for your word to us this morning, and I pray that as we have pieced together a biblical theology of church authority, that we would see your loving, gracious, holy authority behind it. You are the king of the kingdom, and your word, your law is perfect, and it is good. We thank you that you have not left us to our own ways and our own devices, but that you have given us your word so that we will know how to live and we will know how to believe and we will know how to practice. I pray that you would be glorified through Winchester Baptist Church. I pray that every person in this room would be brought a step closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and faithfulness in his church. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.